Yo, thank you everyone for tuning in again to the Tone Bros podcast. If you didn't listen to our uh, kind of uh, pilot prototype episode, go back and take a listen to it. If you listen to that and you're back, well, we really appreciate it. And it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside, like a nice, warm, fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzz face, I think that would be. Joining me yet again is my my co-host and Tone Bro number one. This is uh, Matt Horn. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing good, buddy. How you doing? I've, I'm I'm doing okay. The 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 uh, you know, the day job is a day job. It is what it is. But uh, we're here. We're good. Right. I'm gonna get my work in. Uh, my work in out after out all the in. God, I can't talk today, and that's my day job. Um, Oddly enough, that makes a lot of sense to me. Right. R- <laughs> now I'm gonna get my this workout. Is why we're friends. <laughs> we're gonna get my. I'm gonna get my workout in after this because I got uh, held up a little bit at work. So I'm gonna. I yeah. I was gonna go do leg day today, but I'm gonna go flip tires instead. Hey, that works, dude. Strength cardio is where it's at. Um, but yeah. yeah. So if in case you're wondering what this podcast is still about, we are gonna talk a lot about equipment, gear, new gear, stuff we've used, stuff that's coming out. Um, maybe news in the gear world as well, but we're also going to talk about uh, music in general and how they influenced at least us. And hopefully, uh, you know, eventually we'll have a, a social media presence where you guys can let us know about gear that influenced you. And uh, speaking of which, Matt is the one that kind of spearheaded what we were talking about today. Um, and we're going to talk about some of uh, our guitar heroes that uh, unfortunately have left us. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was just thinking about all the stuff we could talk about. And, you know, I'd be a fool to not acknowledge the passing of Eddie Van Halen. And I know that so many of you guitarists out there were affected by him. And at this point, we're almost three weeks into it. And I'm sure probably a lot of you were sick of hearing about it. But it just goes without saying that this was possibly the most important guitarist, at least of our generation. By our generation, I mean pretty much anybody that's been alive from 1978 till now who is a musician has been affected in some way by Eddie Van Halen. And I think it needs to be discussed. Well, and it, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it, it's one of those, you're not, I, I mean, everyone always appreciated Van Halen. He was always looked at as like the, one of the, the paramounts, like a, a literal true guitar God. You know, I feel like that, that term is thrown around, uh, a little, a little wantonly, you know what I mean? But he was a true guitar God and legend. And you also didn't realize how influential he was in general, but let alone to some of the musicians that are out there today. Right. He, um, I overheard somebody say on a, on a podcast recently, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I'll cite them in a later episode. If you know, once I remember, but he's, Eddie was considered the last of the guitar heroes, the last of the guitar gods, because really before him, it was Hendrix, it was Clapton, and a few other cats. Page, yeah, Page, Townsend. And then he comes along and completely turns everything on its ear. Nobody played like that before he came on the scene. After the scene, everybody started playing like that, or at least the majority of people playing like that. I know I sure as hell did. The first thing I did when I picked up a guitar was I tried to play, I tried to fret tap without even really knowing how, on an acoustic with mile-high action. You can tell how, <laughs> how well that probably went. Oh, pro- oh probably perfectly. Well, in, in my in my 16-year-old mind, it was perfect. Oh, that, well, and and that's the thing is, man, it's it's really easy for, for us to be playing as long as, you know, we have. And, 
I, I think for anybody who even plays after a year or two to kind of lose that wonderment and that joy of just trying to do that. But that's something I think that made Van Halen unique is that he never, ever, ever seemed to lose that. When he was playing guitar, it's that signature grin that he had. And, yep. you know, I, you, you can't understate the fact that it was like it. You know, when you see some guys play they're very technically sound and they're impressive, but you never feel the connection like Van Halen did. You know what I mean? Like when you saw Eddie playing or anything, I know it sounds very cliched, but like it felt like it wasn't, oh, Eddie's playing the guitar. It was just like, oh, that's Eddie. Like it was it was part of him. Yeah, they often say his guitar was he was one with his guitar and he always he brought fun back into rock and roll. I think at least for me, I remember I am lucky enough where I was around when MTV first came out, it was in its infancy and there wasn't a whole lot of videos available at that time. And I just remember being flooded with seeing like hot for teacher jump and I'll wait and whatever other videos were available, like back in 1984. And he just looked, he was just the coolest. The absolute coolest dude. Yeah. I mean, David Lee Roth was cool. Alex Van Halen was cool. Michael Anthony was cool. But Eddie just had it. He just, he always looked like he was having fun up on stage. And not only was he just tearing up on the guitar, but his keyboard playing was phenomenal as well. Oh, dude. The, and, and of course the one everyone thinks about is, you know, jump, of course, with the old, uh, Oberheim, you know, right. but the one that pops into my head is the opening to Why Can't This Be Love That Ooh ah, da, da, bah, like right. it's he no matter what he was playing, he had a sense of tone. Like his tone was always good. And you you think about what he did, and we talked about this a little bit the other day, and we could talk about because there are other guitar players that are gone that this might not be true, but it seems like roundly Van Halen's tone across the years was accepted as wonderful and tasteful. And and I mean, that even goes back to the days where he would take a plexi and rack it. Like, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to plug into a plexi and dime it, like, across the board. It is an experience. I didn't say a good one, but it's an experience. <laughs> yeah, the most I had was I got to play a... Um... A master volume, a fifty watt master volume. I can't remember the model number off the top of my head, so you have to forgive me. But is it was a like a JTM forty five, maybe. No, it wasn't a JTM forty five. Was after that. It was a. It was like a nineteen seventy. It came out like seventy two or seventy four. The guy had it, and it was a. It was a fifty watt plexi, but it was a. Um, it was a super lead. Oh, super was, lead. Okay. So it was like a jam a JMP maybe. Oh, a JMP two. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And it was it was fifty watts. Um, basically, it was he got it because he was playing in a Kiss tribute band, and he wanted that kind of he wanted the amp that Ace was using at the time. Gotcha. And that amp was hell loud, like that. And I only maybe got it up to three or four in a small club. And it was oh, yeah. just it was it was just too much. But I've tried to crank eight hundreds, and it's just I I I still don't know how he was able to get those tones. Even having even owning a fifty one fifty, and I know you'll attest to this from our conversation the other day it always sounded massive it always sounded just ballsy but he made something sweet come out of it and, and i think that was something only he was capable of well and that goes back to the argument of where where does tone really lie you know and and right. it really 
it's true because like, even though I'm running a digital rig, you know, I know heresy for a lot of people out there, but I'm running the, the line six helix. I'm in the helix ecosystem and I've had the, the Axe effects ultra and I've played Kempers and I've played, uh, the, you know, other stuff like, but even with that, where it's, it's a digital process. When I have someone plug into my rig and they play, they don't sound like me. Right. You know, and so that's the, the kind of same thing is you can spend all the money in the world on equipment. And so many people, like you said, he made something sweet come out of the 5150. Any iteration of the 5150, whether it's the the one, the two, or even after he left the 6505s, uh, the 5153, when you plug into those things, they're, they... I like the 5152 the best, but I I had a block letter and you did you did too. Yep. There was always Actually, I think mine mine was a script, I think. Well, you were, they were the either way, they were the same. same. Yeah, like it was I same mean, thing, yeah. But it, it like there was always this high-end fizz. You know what I mean? It's right. it, everyone knows about it, but you never heard it in Van Halen's playing. Like that no. fizz just wasn't there. I don't know how and he, he was, did that. Well, and if I mean, I'm sure you saw the video that Fluff posted where he was talking about he downloaded Eddie's exact uh, settings on his 5150, and he scooped it. Which I I tried it when I when I had it for uh, for the couple of years that I had it, but it just sounded better. With honestly, everything was at six or seven yep. to me. That sounded the best. But for me, I I didn't get any of that fizz when I was using the rhythm channel with the gain cranked with the crunch knob engaged and something just gently pushing the front of it like a tube screamer. But um, yeah, it's tone is, is absolutely in the fingers to a point. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but did he not, did they not do a gig with Ted Nugent back in the, like the late seventies or the early eighties? And he played on Ted's rig, which was pretty much that Gibson hollow body and a bunch of fender twins. And he still sounded like Eddie Van Halen. I never heard that story, but to be fair, uh, Nugent and and Van Halen had kind of the same ethos with how they ran their amps. You know, I I think it was, what was, what was, um, what was Ted using back then? He was using bandmasters, wasn't he? He he was either using bandmasters or he was using that, um, not a super twin, but they were like these. I think they were, he, he used to say there were 200 Watts. Now I don't know how, I don't know if Fender ever making a 200 Watt amplifier, but again, I'm not a Fender expert or anything like that. I know Marshall was renowned for that, that 200 Watt major head that oh, um, like Richie Blackmore used. Good Lord. Which I can't even fathom that. And then, and with uh, Mesa Boogie having the Coliseum 350 Watts, Ugh. how is that even possible? Yo, I I've owned, I've owned a Mark IV, and I had a Road King. I had that Road King. Right. That Road King was 150. Yep. And it it was brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. Now, weirdly enough, though, the 90 watt, or was it 80, 85 watts, the Mark Mark IV? Is it 85 I think so. It was either 90? 85 or 88. Like, I think it was 85. Yeah, I think it was 85. That was a loud fucking 85 watts. <laughs> Because oh yeah, that's a mean amp. But that's the thing, like two hundred watts. Good God, or what Ted was doing? Holy shit! You know, like 
But yeah. that's the And th- I think he was he was doing doing the daisy chain too, I think that some of yeah, the guys I guess when you have combos, it's a lot easier to do that. But he was just daisy chaining uh, combo after combo after combo. So he eventually effectively had something like 12 gain stages with his rig, <sighs> which I can't even wrap my brain around that. No, he must have been horrendous. But uh, but that's the thing. And that lends credence to the fact that, you know, we talked we mentioned the on the other episode, Billy Corgan trying out Van Halen's rig and he couldn't control it, you know. Right. So I, I think. And uh, there's an episode, uh, Ben Eller on YouTube, Uncle Ben, Mm -hmm. he did an episode about why guitar players like Van Halen, and I'm not going to spoil any of it. Go watch that and also subscribe to Ben Eller's channel. He is amazing. Um, His playing, his attitude, his technique, and his opinions are all wonderful um, and very salient. The um, but but the thing about Van Halen is that he gave us so much, so that even if you weren't, I mean, my God, the the fifty one fifty was an amp that was made back in the early nineties and is still to this day a hallmark steadfast amp for metal, like right. you know, and everyone everyone loves the fifty one fifty in some way, and. Then you, I mean, hell, you even have guys like who are with PV now, Misha Mansour in the Invective. He designed the drive channel off that, off of his block letter 5150. Well, and look at all the albums it was on. Look at the bands that made that their their hallmark. Any band that ever recorded in the studio Fredman setup, that was 5150, that was Marshall Valve State, that was 800 whatever else he they were using. Um, but the 5150 was the core of that sound. So In Flames, Soil Work, um, At The Gates, all those bands. Um, Machine Head. Machine Head. Yeah, the Burn My Eyes. They're like first three. Well, I think most of their albums, if I remember correctly, most of them had a 5150 on. I know Burn My Eyes, at least, and um, The More Things Change. Well, and and that that sound is just hor- hor- horrifyingly awesome. Well, and they use the green ch- the way you ran yours. They use the crunch channel um, with a tube screamer in front of it. That's the sound of Machine Head. Yep, like that's they- that's exactly when I first heard that, and I saw an interview that Rob did, and he talked about getting that sound, and I tried it, and I'm like, that's it, that's the tone. Yep, and well, and that's the thing we talk about the tones and everything. And and the influence of Van Halen, I mean, from effects to uh, spearheading uh, the usage of a Floyd Rose, the tapping, the amps, all that stuff. But um, there, you know, other guitar players who have who have kind of gone. I mean, we could spend an entire episode on Van Halen alone. Right. Uh, but yep. other guys now, I know for me, and we we talked a little bit off of uh, recording on the last episode after we were done. Um, for me, I had mentioned on the podcast that the Dimebag was mm. the one, like for me, that was like, now, of course, Metallica and I said, Kirk and James, they were a big influence, but like, as far as ones of, of guitar players that we don't have anymore, um, Dime for me was it. He was it, like, I'm never get. Here's a fun story. So when I was a kid growing up. I, you know, I admittedly lived a little bit of a sheltered life, but I think oh, it likewise. was, I think it was good though, because when I got older, I was able to appreciate art in a more mature understanding way. I think, um, that could just be me justifying or whatever. <laughs> um, but oh, no, I agree with you. We weren't allowed to watch MTV. 
you know, we weren't allowed to watch MTV when we were younger, but I remember sitting there being like 12 or 11 or 12. And, you know, my mom left the room and I went, switched over to MTV and there was a Madonna video on it. It was right at the end of it. And I was like, Ooh, um, <laughs> and then it, it faded out. And then the next thing I hear, and I was like, what, what is this? I'd never heard anything like that. Again, I'd never heard anything like it before. It was kind of like later when I heard uh, Ride the Lightning. But this, I'm sitting there, I'm like, what is this? And I sat and watched the video for Walk. And Dimes playing and that crushing sound. You could hear the drums, the bass, Dimes' guitar, and Phil Anselmo's heroin-ridden vocals, you know, on walk and then you know hearing dime play it was mind-blowing and that stuck with me so when i got into metal and i became more aware and i got into pantera dime's tone to me was always the quintessential heavy metal sound like when i'm talking now not to shit on metallica or megadeth or anything but to me dime's tone was perfect it was tight, it was aggressive, and it was mean. But it could also be really sweet. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to explain because um, I kind of ran into this problem when I first started listening to Randy Rhodes because as great as he was as a player, we can all kind of agree, no offense to Randy, but his tone, at least on the Blizzard of Oz, was not not what you would consider good (laughs) i i I hate i'm I'm gonna be i'm gonna be harsh about it but with dime he doesn't have like a conventionally good tone at least to my ears but it works like when you hear it you immediately know that it's that it's him exactly now my experience my first exposure to pantera was completely different than than yours it was on mtv and i think i was watching 120 minutes uh remember that show it was either 120 minutes or alternative nation one of those late night Saturday night shows and the video that they played, the first song I ever heard by them was strangely enough, their cover of planet caravan. Oh, and I really only stuck around for it because I was just getting into black Sabbath and I heard that and I saw the video and I'm like, no, this band is cool. This band is wicked cool. And then just reading a couple articles and then hearing cowboys from hell and hearing cemetery gates. That's, that's what did it for me. Now for me, like the, the crushing song, um, that I completely fell for off of vulgar display was um, this love. Oh yeah, but because that- he goes from the real sweet, clean, almost I don't want to say almost dated like eighties power, like dark ballad kind of thing, just into this hella brutal chug. Well, and then also later the solo when it goes yeah. back to that clean part and he does that solo. That's why I'm saying his tone and his playing could be so sweet. And I yep. mean, at the time of Vulgar Display, he was still rocking, if I'm memory serves me correct, he was still rocking the old RG100 ESs, like the, yeah. the Randalls. And that's yep. the thing that blows my mind about Dime, is that if you look at his equipment, nothing about it says, oh, this is a great tone. Like, and I'm not shitting on the solid state stuff because, like, George Lynch used a, a Randall solid state combo live. I was just going to say that George Lynch was a big Randall solid state guy for a long time. 
Oh, oh, dude, that's the thing is that there are so many like misconceptions about what people used. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and now like, but, but like, that's the thing with Dimes tone is that you look at throughout his, the, the history up until the whole thing with crank and the Crankenstein and you, him using that in the revolution heads. Like yep. it was always solid state Randall's. It was the, the RG 100 uh, ES. It was the, um, uh, the rack mount and the head version. It was the century 200, um, which he used on the, the stuff like um, far beyond driven. And I think on great Southern trend kill. Um, yeah. And then so I think the warhead came out not long after the, I think Southern trend kill. I think that there might've been some warhead on that, but I, memory serves me correctly he was he was endorsing those after pantera was kind of not doing a whole lot of active recording well he he endorsed those he had those on um reinventing the steel like he he had them like in the video for um revolution is my name you can see the warheads in there and live he used the warhead for his clean he never used the warhead distortion for his his main sound. In fact, on reinventing the steel, he went back to using the RG one hundred ESs, his old ones. Yeah. But he never front ended front ended with an overdrive. He always had the 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 parametric that he ran in front of it, and he had a boss uh EQ, I think a boss EQ. No, no, it was an MXR, the graphic. The, the Yeah, ten bit the ten band one, I think. I think it was eight. I think it was eight or six band. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking of Ed that was using the 10 band EQ, but like, you know, it, it, that's the thing is absolutely nothing about his sound should have worked, but it did. He just made it work and made it sound great. And even when he was using in, um, uh, what was it called? Um, the, the um, uh, the band after that him and Vinny did after Pantera damage, damage plan. plan damage plan. After that, he, he, you know, he's, he was using the Randall warhead X two for a little bit. And then when, when his thing with Randall and Washburn ran out, he went back to Dean and then he started using the crank stuff and it was right. a huge deal. He started using tube amps. Um, but you know, unfortunately, we lost him. And, uh, dude, I remember the day that Dime got... I, I found out Dime got killed. I woke up... I was I was going to, to um, the branch campus of Lock Haven here in, uh, you know, in town. And I got up and I checked my email before I went to school. And my buddy Trevor sent me an email saying, hey, man... Um, I didn't know if you heard about this, you know, but I wanted to tell you, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. And I went, he's pulling my leg. And I opened up MSN, like the homepage news homepage that we had on the computer. And yeah, it showed it. I broke down like a little tiny baby. I was so sad. It was, it was awful. It was awful. Like, I think for me, I was sitting, um, I was sitting at my desk at home and i remember the night it happened i was on the old harmony central forums i wonder if they're still even open but i was harmony central kind of surfing around on there 
And all of a sudden on the forums, like every time I would hit a new page, these threads would start popping up, shooting at Damage Plan Show, Dimebag shot, Vinnie Paul shot. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is bullshit. Like this, this can't really be happening. And then scrolling in and just keep refreshing. And it's like, no, people shot, people killed. Dimebag shot and killed. Vinny shot and killed, even though Vinny didn't wasn't yeah, Vin- killed. Yeah. I don't think Vinny was shot. Yeah, I don't think he was either. I think it was Dime, a roadie, and like one other person yeah. was shot. But Dime was the first one to get shot. I don't even like talking about it because it's terrifying. No. For those it, of us who perform, you know, this can happen at any point. Yeah, that's and and it's it's a scary thing. Um but no, you mentioned Randy Rhodes. Now, like I talked about Dime's gear. I didn't even touch on the Dean stuff or his Washburn stuff or the the Bill Lawrence's right. uh, versus the Dimebucker. Like I didn't even touch on that stuff. But you you're more of a Randy Rhodes fan than I am. Um and Randy, I mean, he he used the he used the Marshall stuff. Um yes. but his his effects chain, the pickups, like all that stuff, I don't I, I I'll admit, aside from his white Les Paul and the Concord V, the like I don't really know much about Randy Rhodes and his equipment. Like, can you enlighten me a little bit? Um, yeah, uh, I'll just kind of par- I'm put, pulling up some of my notes here. So he was um, he was a big Les Paul guy. Now it's rumored that the first um, the first album he did with um, Ozzy, which was Blizzard of Oz, that he was using pretty much his Les Paul custom exclusively. I think it had Demarzio pickups in it actually, but. He was using that, that this is, I'm just looking here, it was a 74 uh, Les Paul custom. And it was that real faded, that kind of ugly cream faded color that oh, yeah. is ugly but beautiful at the same time. It had been gigged. And, yeah. Yeah. And it was, I guess he joined Ozzy's band right around, or it was like early 1980 because he was actually a founding member of Quiet Riot. So, oh, yeah. Um, and when they fell apart, he he apparently had already had this custom guitar built by this Carl Sandoval. And it was a flying V that polka dot flying V that this dude custom made for him. So he was taking those in with, uh, with Ozzy, but he was using predominantly the Les Paul through just a 1959, uh, plexi head. And as far as effects goes, there wasn't really, I mean, I think he was using stuff by, by boss. I think he had, he also had a synthesizer, uh, pedal that he was using like, um, wasn't a Moog? Wasn't I don't it think Moog t- was making stuff? The tar, the Taurus pedal, or something like that. It, I don't remember if you. I think it was a Taurus. I think it was the same one. He was. I'm gonna just double check that and make sure I'm well, not bullshitting everybody. Well, I thought I, I. I don't know if he had the boss, the boss stuff, but I know the big thing that he was. That's the. This is the one other thing that I really know about Randy Rhodes and his tone. Oh, it's MXR. The Sorry. MXR Distortion Plus. Yeah, that terrible little yellow vomit box. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's a piece of gear that I I've tried. I have tried older ones. I've tried reissues. I've tried. I, I just don't like it. Yeah, because it, it's and like a, ugh, I don't know. It's one of those things where we were talking about it yesterday. It's one of those things where, um, you know, it's gear that's hollowed that we just don't like. And yeah. I think it's it's fine if we have experience with it. Like you know, you played it, you tried it to make it work. You just couldn't get it to work for you. And that's and that's the cool thing about music is that what doesn't work for me 
might work for you and vice versa. But in this case, like if you look at his gear, like, yeah, I'm looking now, he was all MXR. He was using the 10 band EQ, stereo chorus, analog delay, the flanger. The other thing I think that really was interesting with him is that his marshals weren't using Celestian speakers. He wasn't using eminent speakers. He was using Altex. Oh, that's which is what we're in the old right. fenders. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. all techs apparently were used in like old, fe- like they're super clean. I um, thought, but I think they're really low wattage too. And here, I thought the older fenders were um, like uh, Jensen and Sheffield. Well, I think they were using. You know what? Yeah, you're you're right. No, no, no. I'm. That's yeah. not correcting you. I, I could. There, there were t- like all tech is a brand. And a, and a speaker that I forget about. I had no idea his four tools were loaded with Altex. Yeah, it, actually, now that yeah, I think I was getting Altex and Jensen's confused. So my bad on that. But um, Altex, now that I think about, it, I think they're actually used in stereos too. Like I just I know that they weren't traditionally used for, you know, at the time high gain Marshall amps. But he somehow made it work. But I think that might have been that might have been a big key. Uh, to his tone and also i think it was his mic placement too i think he was one of those guys that had his sm57 right like dead center in it so they just Oof. got they had that real ratty sound like right on the dust cap yeah Ooh, that yeah and well and and again though i mean like when you hear randy Rhodes, you know it's randy Rhodes. yeah that's that kind of thing it's kind of like when you hear steve vi you know it's steve vi um, right. And, and that go that, th- this is just a little sidebar. We'll come back around because I, I have yeah. another, uh, another point to kind of go along with that. The, um, like, for example, we were in my band last year for Halloween. We learned feed my Frankenstein, which it, it went okay, but it wasn't super. Um, cause it's a surprisingly weird song to make work live. If you don't have a band like <laughs> Alice Cooper, um, but well, and who's who was playing guitar on that album? Like side that, note, because wasn't it Red Beach? No, uh, on uh, my point was on that song. On the rest of the album, I don't know. But the two solos on that song <laughs> were Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. Get out! I never knew no. that. Like it could now now not having that knowledge. You go listen to the solo section where it's the two solos that trade off. Yeah. And you can absolutely hear it is Satch, then Vi, and then both of them together. I got to listen to that. Oh, dude. When I get off the phone with you, I'm going to listen to that. Oh, absolutely. It it will blow your mind because you go like, because like there was, we were listening to it and I was like, that second solo really sounds Vi-ish. But that was also during the time when Vi was really popular. So people were trying to, to do his thing, but no one does it like him. And that circling back around to Randy Rhodes, that's kind of the point is like all the subsequent guitar players that came after Randy, like, um, you know, Jakey Lee, uh, even Brad, didn't Brad Gillis play with Ozzy for a while? Yeah, he, um, and this is kind of interesting because we're going to, I'm just really going to brief, briefly mention another passing hero. Yeah. The story was, and it's been verified by a couple of different sources, um, it was Brad Gillis replaced, well, not replaced, but he was playing in Ozzy's band. He was, I guess Night Ranger was just about coming around, and he got Brad Gillis just to kind of fill in. But the, the rumor was that his next guitarist, the guy that he was trying to get to fully replace Randy, was Gary Moore. 
which <laughs> would have blown my mind. Oh, wow. I don't I know just, if Gary was, Moore would have fit, though. He wouldn't have. But that, it would have, well, I don't think he would have fit. But who knows? Because when you listen to, like, if you go back and listen to his stuff that he did with Phil Lynott in the 80s, um, and I'll, we'll move on past Gary Moore because I want to talk about him later. But he had he had a phase in the early to mid 80s where he was almost doing power metal. Like, go listen to the song Out in the Fields. And oh, there's a lead the in there that far you, away. Over the hills and far away. You listen to that stuff and you think he was in a German metal band. You think it was Halloween. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, or one of those kinds of bands. Uh, his playing was so, uh, so fast. And he just had that massive, like, crunched out Marshall sound using Ibanez's with EMGs, you know, and this is the blues guy doing that stuff. What? But yeah, it was Brad Gillis um, was the guy for a while and Gary supposedly was going to do the gig, but he backed out. And then that's what led to Jake joining the band. And that's the, that's the, well, the other thing in a side note, just because, you know, more gear stuff, didn't Gary Moore at one point run like five DOD death metal pedals? I don't see. I heard something weird about that. I know what? when he died in 2011 Yeah, and his pedal board from like 2008 on, he had a Digitech bad monkey. Oh yeah. He had one or two of them. Which I mean, they're they're modified tube screamers. I don't I don't care what anybody says. They're modified tube screamers, and I know he was using that to goose his amp, but he was also using, um, he was using uh, DSLs. I think toward the end, Marshall DSLs. I don't remember him using the death metal pedals. I know um, David Gilmore was using them, which was weird. I swear, I saw a rig picture. It was his pedal board, and it was later in his career. I swear to God, because it was like he like ran. It was some goofy pedal like that. It was something like like a DoD or a Digitech um, that that he ran like four or five of them, and I was just like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> like it wasn't you know. the it wasn't the Boss Heavy Metal pedal, was it? No, no. Right, because I know he was a big he was a big Boss guy in the in the early eighties. Yeah, he was right. He had like one or two uh, DS ones that he was chaining together, um, but you know. I wouldn't put it past him because this is the guy that was using three or four echoplexes in front of his marshals. Oh yeah, like, like I, it. I, I, dude, I don't mean to keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, you're, this is just no, like. It's all good. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to find Gary. Let, let me look. Gary Moore pedal board here. Now, like, yeah. the, well, there's tons of pictures of his rig, but like, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Because I can't find it now, but I swear it was Gary Moore, and it blew my mind because Gary Moore's tone is incredible. Yeah, it's it's big and it's fat. I mean, it all centers around, I guess, um, like when people think of Gary Moore, they think of, um, oh my god, shit, <laughs> sorry, the, I totally just had a brain fart. Um, the, the governor. Well, the governor was yeah, the, the governor was key, um, but it was the album that he used it on. It was the. Um, still got the blues album oh yeah and it was apparently his les paul it was it, and it wasn't the peter green les paul it was another one another 59 that he had been sold by some dude it was that into the governor and i think into a tube screamer into a jtm 45 wow and that was basically the tone at least on still got the blues yeah now, some of his other stuff was plexi and jcm 900 but i mean he was a marshall guy up even I've, I've seen videos as far back as like 70, 1970, 1969, where he was playing orange amps. 
pretty much 70, like after he joined Thin Lizzy in, I think it was 73 or 74, it was all Marshall. Yeah. But I think that was also a uniform thing because everybody in the band, after Eric Bell left the band, Gary Moore came in with his Les Paul and his Marshall. And then um, Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham were playing Les Pauls. Then they got John Sykes playing Les Paul. You know, I think it was just when you'd played in Thin Lizzy, you had to play a Les Paul through a Marshall. That was just... Well, that was the prerequisite thing. Well, and since you threw out this name, and I don't mean to to drive away from Gary Moore because I know you're no, no. you're a huge Gary Moore fan, but let, let let's mention Les Paul for Christ's sake. I mean, oh Jesus, yeah. how like we can thank him number one for the solid body electric guitar for but part partially, you know, right? We can thank him for multi track recording, and we can thank him for um, pushing the development of like uh, we uh, we say we thank him because he he made the log the infamous the log you know what i mean right. um yep. but like it, it, he he's the one that kind of you know was like this needs to happen everyone thought it was insane fender actually was courting him did you know that i'd heard about that cuz there was some kind of controversy as to who created the first uh, solid body electric guitar. Some people say it was Fender. Some people say it was Gibson. Some even say it was Bigsby. Bigsby apparently has a patent that dates back to 1947, somewhere around there. And it's a single cut, uh, single cut solid body with yep. a six in line headstock. And I, I, and you know, oh no, and I, I learned some of this stuff. I have a book about the the PAF, um, okay. and also a book called the the history of loud that I've been reading. Yep. Um, and the, the thing that's crazy is like, Les Paul went to Gibson and was like, yo, <laughs> like you need to make this happen. And they were like, there's no market for this. Nope. So then Leo Fender was like, you know, Hey, like what was willing to listen. And he was talking to Les and he was serious. And Les went back because he was a Gibson guy and was like, right. look, you need to do this like cuz Fender's coming and knocking and Gibson was still hesitant. Well, Fender, Lee, uh, you know, Les said no to Fender and Fender said, "Well, I'm going to go do it anyway." So they made, you know, the broadcaster, you know, the the fir- the snakehead and then the the broadcaster yep. and then the telecaster and you know, history was made. But once Gibson saw this, they went, "Okay, Les, <laughs> we'll 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 take you up on this." And I mean, the Les Paul. How many guitar players out there, Matt, do you think don't even know that that's a signature guitar? I didn't until I, I think I was playing for two years before I actually, because I'm like, what is Les Paul? What the hell does Les Paul mean? Like, what is this? Yeah. And somebody explained it to me. Oh, it's a guitarist. And then I saw, I don't know if you remember back in the early 90s, uh, Time Life released a video series called The History of Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. And they had one dedicated to guitar heroes and they talked to Les Paul and I'm like, Oh my God, that's the guy. That's the guy. And I was shocked that he was a jazz player because the guitar that basically reinvented rock and roll and it was built basically for jazz. No, like that's, that's the thing about Les Paul is like forgetting that he was a jazz country, you know, whatever you want to call him. Did you ever go back and watch the stuff you mentioned? Did you mention Les Paul and Mary Ford? I didn't mention Mary Ford, but I was actually going to. Yeah. Uh, but he beat me to the punch. But that was another thing where he was a guy who was, 
you know, in addition to guitar playing, in addition to guitar building, the whole DIY, you know, fix it, mess with it until it works. Um, his studio, um, his sense of production, all of that stuff, multi-track recording. But he also made this work as effectively as a sideman. If you really look at it, if, like if you listen to Les Paul and Mary Ford, even though Mary Ford was a badass guitarist as well, like she was a crazy guitarist. But, you know, when you think about them, it's it was Les Paul and Mary Ford, How High the Moon, both playing Gibson guitars. You know, it's he was really big into like the equality. He was one of the guys that, you know, no, I'm she's the star. I'm the side man. Uh, and so. exactly like and and that's the thing about Les Paul is that like he there's conflicting stories about him being just a sweet man and also an abject right. son of a bitch. Um, oh, yeah. But then again, y- you know, if you're a human being, you'll you'll have the same thing. You ask one person about you, they'll say you're a saint. You ask another person, they'll say you're the scum of the earth. You know what I mean? But yep. like the that's the thing that was like, Matt, I want off the cuff. If I say the word Les Paul, what do you think of? Well, I first think of the guitar, but then like a second later, it's I, I get the picture of him playing. Honestly, I get him playing. as a picture I saw in a book where he was he and Mary Ford were playing white SG customs. Oh, my God. That's, the re- yeah. yeah, that was actually the, the white SG customs were originally the the new version of the Les Paul. Right. That that blows my mind. Like, and yeah, the, the 61 SG is the 61 Les Paul. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, like I, I couldn't imagine like him with his with what he was going for as the guitar. Gibson walks in and says, oh, hey, by the way, here's your new guitar. He's like, get my name off that shit now. Mm-hmm. But, he you thought know, it but looked- the SG in, in and of itself, the SG has uh, been in production longer than the Les Paul was. Consistently. Yeah. yeah, Well, I was going to say consistently. Yeah. There was a couple years where the Les Paul wasn't made. Wasn't there? Yeah. It was 61 to 60s, 66, I think. Wow. But it was a couple of years where they stopped. They weren't producing it. Like the, like the SG was the Les Paul and that was how it was going to be. And then he ended his, now there's again, conflicting reports. Like you had said, did he see the SG hate it and say, I'm done with you. Or was there something else going on that just kind of, or was it just a simple, when well, my contract is up, I'm going to try some other things because I'm, he was still playing Gibson's. I'm not sure. I think it was, I think it was one of those things where they wanted to do away with the single cut and they wanted the SG to be the new guitar and he didn't like yeah. it. And, you know, but the, like when I think, when I think less Paul, like when I think of the, aside from after thinking of the guitar first, the first thing that pops into my head and I know I'm I'm a very basic metal bitch. I think of Zach Wild, like, I, dude. Yeah. I that's what I think of. I think of Zach Wild and his Bullseye Les Paul. And I understand a lot of people out there are probably screaming at me about uh, Jimmy Page and all that stuff. And you know, you could you could argue, uh, you know, Gary Moore. You could basically any guitar player ever, any famous guitar player. But like, like Slash. That's oh, that's what I think of too. Slash. Oh yeah, like Slash. But like for me, straight up, it's I just think of Zach Wild and his Bullseye Les Paul. Like, and that broke my heart when he left Gibson. 
that broke my heart because I was like, Zach, come on, dude. I get it. But, you know, like, and uh, have you played any of the wild audio stuff? No. And I'll be honest with you. I have zero desire to do so (laughs) just because I and I think you I don't remember if it was you or if it was someone else that I know had said that the necks on those things are literally like we use the term baseball bat neck. This isn't a baseball bat neck. This is a boat or neck. Mm. Like it is so round and so thick. Absolutely. But I think that that kind of attributes to the tone too. Bigger it, neck, thicker wood, bigger and they, tone. They don't play bad. Like they're not they're not bad playing or bad sounding guitars. It's just they are a burden to play. And if you're into that thing, go for it. Or if right. you want to have one in your arsenal, that's cool too. But like it's a very specialized thing. And I think that's kind of the problem with signature equipment like we mentioned about the gems you know what i mean you either love them or you hate them and that's the problem with wild audio is like you know i know it's like i i will say i appreciate the impetus of zach wild saying this is what i play this is what i like this is what you get because he's standing by his product like i play it i use it this is it if you want what i play this is it but you know Maybe, maybe make make the necks a little thinner because I know a lot of people, that's their thing, is I think they look cool. They're cheesy metal gu- guitars, but they right. look really cool. And they are high quality, but, man, that neck is unbearable. Like, yeah. you know, and I've softened my stance. I used to be a wizard neck guy, um, like th- as thin as you can get. And now as I go along... My Ibanez's I have, I love, but when I pick up some of the newer ones, the necks are so thin that I'm like, I don't know if I could play this. Like, um, right. you know, that's just me, but it, we, we, we got off track. I apologize. Yeah, we, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, like, I was just looking at the agenda here real quick. Um, yeah, we can, we can jump back on that, but yeah, with Les Paul, I think, um, it, it was, it's in the hands of so many players. I mean, you can argue what's the number one guitar in the world? What's the best guitar in the world? Well, best is subjective. Number one is subjective because there's a lot of things you have to look at. You have to look at sales. You have to look at like per capita volume. You have to look at all that stuff. The Les Paul has effectively been in the hands of everybody, much like the Strat. It's been in the hands of everybody. Um, and, you know, we can we can obviously thank Les Paul for that. But in addition to that, like I mentioned before, it was this DIY mentality, like I'm going to make this work. I'm going to take... A, a railroad track and put pickups in it because I think that'll produce a good sound. Did it produce a good sound? We don't know. Apparently not. But it's that whole mindset of make it work. Just make it work that I think we can all learn a bit from that. A- absolutely. Like, I, dude, I bought at an auction in the middle of abject nowhere in Pennsylvania. Um, I went to an auction with my dad and they had a couple guitars. They had a Gibson amp, an old Gibson, uh, what GA 15 for sale. Yeah, something like that. And some, there were guys who bid that up, but they had uh, a neck and a body. They were a no name neck, no name body. And it was shell pink Telecaster. Oh God. Like Jesus, 30 bucks for the body and neck. It was my first refret I ever did. It was the, um, I wired the whole thing. I set it up. I did the whole thing. And I love it. It's it's my my brute like it's it's my like one of my road dogs. 
Like it's I, like it's it sounds and plays pretty great. And it was a $30 neck and body from a random auction. Like Oh yeah. You know, you 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 make it work. Like and and that's why I hope that we'll see with the passing of Van Halen I hope we see people starting to do more parts casters, you know, or, you know, going, I'm going to start putting, you know, try modifying my guitar with little stuff. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that, you know, or the guitar they have instead of buying a new one, change things on it to make it the way you want it. So you don't have to spend all that crazy money. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm extremely inspired to try to, do more not lose your work but more of the diy stuff like i have that old squire uh here that i want to uh, it's just dying for like a single pit guard or a single pickup pit guard you know i'm just i'm 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 putting it in there and i'm looking at it and i'm going god this this could use so much work but it's stuff that i think i could do um but again we have we have eddie to thank for that and we have Les paul to thank for that because like how much did eddie spend on his original setup or his his original guitar neck and body it was like what it was like 80 bucks for the body and like 30 bucks for the neck or vice versa something stupid like that so for a little more than a hundred dollars he was able to to you know reinvent rock and roll absolutely like and, and seeing how it developed over the years from the black and white stripe all the way up to um the you know the frankenstein guitar that we all know and love you know yep. um now really quick talking about um, guitar heroes that passed, I said, you know, dime was a big one for me. And, and in the past couple years, because playing in the cover band that I do, I developed an appreciation for Van Halen more than I had before. So Van Halen kind of started influencing me before his passing. Yeah. So those are my two. You have one that a lot of people might not think about. I think I know where you're going with that. Yep. Are we going with TK? Yup. Okay. Yeah, Terry Kath. Um, yeah, a lot of people aren't familiar with Terry Kath. I think most everybody knows Chicago because they've only been, uh, you know, they've only had uh, hit singles. Um, this is actually the first decade that they have not had a hit single just because they're not releasing a lot of new material. But they've essentially had a hit single in every decade since the 1960s. Their first album being released in 1969, 68 or 69. And they were one of those bands that were putting out like two and three albums yearly. And not just like little EPs, not just like quick 30 minute albums. They were releasing double albums repeatedly. Their first three albums were double albums back to back, all released within between 1969 and 1971. Huge amount of material and not just simple stuff, but tons of orchestration tons of arrangement on it and terry kath was i think the backbone of the band because whereas the band definitely has a jazz influence they definitely haven't he was more of the r&b influence they always called him the engine of the band because he was effectively doing a lot of the lead vocals in the early days and providing rhythmic component providing the melody providing leads and playing them on equipment that you just didn't see and he was another guy that was modifying his gear way before that was that was ever cool like way before steve morris ever started ripping out the pickups on his guitars before eddie bought his parts terry kath was in the trenches 
you know, throwing a humbucker in his telecaster, throwing a, a strat bridge, like grinding it into the body of his telecaster, stuff like that, and playing these insane, um, like rhythm and blues licks, uh, rhythm parts, and then like exploding into these crazy fuzzed out leads. It's just, it's, it's mind blowing. And the dude, he looked like just a dude. He was like slightly overweight with like really like, you know, like a ratty beard. And he just, he just seemed like a guy that would hang out at a bar and he probably did, but yeah. Um, yeah. His playing was so, so uh, important to, to that style. And he, with the other guitarists, they've had other really great guitarists that played in the band after his passing. But even the, the guys in the band, say numerous times terry kath was the man for the band he was the heart and soul of the band and when he passed the they essentially lost their they lost their identity now not to get off on a tangent but you can argue that you know he he died in 1978 um we we briefly talked about the circumstance with his passing but i'll just very well we touch did, on it we did that off podcast too yeah so terry kath um Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but he was a, a gun enthusiast and um, he was also dealing with um, substance abuse and he was dealing with some, you know, borderline mental health issues. And just one night at a party, he was a little, as I understand, he was inebriated and playing with his guns. He was he had this kind of morbid curiosity with with firearms. And somebody said, you know, you, you want to be careful with that. And he said, oh, don't worry, it's not loaded. And he held the gun up to his head. Well, here he forgot to clear the chamber from the bullet and he pulled the trigger right after saying, oh, it's not loaded. And that was it. One round and he was gone. And um, it wasn't even like he was, you know, taken to a hospital or anything. No, he was instantly taken away. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And that's just I mean, it's tragic when anybody passes. But to be when the band is at at basically their commercial height, but he was at like a personal low, at least from, from what I had read about him, it just makes it even more tragic because what would he have done had he just made the decision to put the gun down? And it was just such a freak accident that, you know, it's, it's astounding when you think about what else he would have done and what else that band would have done had he not just made that simple mistake. Well, you know, Obviously, you have a, a, a really, you know, kind of big connection. And Ka uh, Terry Kath was really important to you uh, playing and everything. Uh, so how did his playing? Let's touch on this really quick before uh, before we call it an episode. Because, um, again, right. I know I know you're a busy man and uh, I got uh, tires to throw around. Um, <laughs> but the you know, how did. If if we take each take one player, and I assume you're going to take Car Terry Kath on this one, and I'm going to probably pick Dime. How did mm. he influence the way you play, and like what tricks and things like that did you take? Well, for me, it was. I mean, you have to remember too when I when I first really got into Chicago it was roughly around. I'm going to say eighty five or eighty six, and they you know. I don't care what anybody says. 1984 was probably the greatest year for music because so much incredible material came out in that year. Van Halen's 1984 album, but Chicago released Chicago 17, which was kind of their, 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 I don't want to say their benchmark, but they had 
I think three or four number one hit songs. They were Grammy winning uh, songs. They were, they were just on top of the world. Um, but things kind of started to get a little wonky around then. But I remember um, hearing all this music and I think it was my mother said, well, if you like that, you should listen to the old Chicago, the Chicago I grew up with. And she had a bunch of tapes of older Chicago and she would, she played 25 or six to four. It was the opener of one oh. of the greatest hit albums. And just hearing that. What is that? And she's like, that's that guy died. He's, he was the guitarist. He died like years after the song was released, but he's not, in, he's been dead for a couple of years now. And I just, I said, who is he? What was he doing? And she, you know, she wasn't really hundred percent certain because she's not a music geek like we are. Um, right. But then I saw something on ABC. They were really, they were really tight with like Dick Clark and they were constantly being shown on ABC and they did this live um, performance on in like 1990 or 91. And they had mentioned Terry Kath and they were showing old clips of him. I'm like, so that's the guy, that's the guy. And then basically for the next like eight years, all I listened to was old Chicago from the first album on. But for me, 25 or six to four, I think is the song that if I want to, if I want people to experience Chicago, if I want people to experience Terry Kath, that's the song I'm going to give them. I know it's cliched because it's been their closer for the last 40 years, but <laughs> it's, it's a good it, one, no though. joke. It, it's yeah, it's there. It's been their closer for 40 plus years. Every high school band, every college band played it except for ours, I think. Um, but it's just that song. His playing on it, that riff is timeless. His leads on it, he has a little bit of a little Latin flair in some of it. Um, and his voice, his his actual physical voice is astounding. Like go back and listen to a song like Color My World. It's just it's so good. Um, but I'm really getting off off subject here. For me, it was Terry's it, it, it was his vocal ability, but as far as guitar goes, his rhythms, uh his rhythm styles. Um, just like real heavy handed, but when he would flip over to a lead, his, he was just burning up and down the neck. He was also one of the first guys to start using feedback. He was using fuzz pedals, um, as early as 68. Um, there's this awesome story that, um, they were opening up, they were either opening up for, or he had opened up for them, but they were playing with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, and yeah. And he was talking with somebody, some well-known player um, in the, in the guitar community. And they asked him about who he, who he was really into right now. And he said, honestly, Terry Kath is the guy right now. He, after the show that he saw, he went up to, I think it was Robert, the keyboardist. And he's like, that your guitar player is the best guitarist I've ever heard. Like paraphrasing. Wow. He's like, that is better than I am. And they're like, what? I mean, of course, they all thought he was he was amazing, but Hendrix basically idolized Billy Gibbons, or like early, early because I think oh, Hendrix yeah. died in '72. But it was Billy Gibbons and Terry Kath. He really considered Terry Kath to be the best guitarist at that time. Wow! So to me, if you can impress Jimi Hendrix and you hear it on their first album, you hear his influence. Oh, the, for the sure. Influence Hendrix had on him, just howling feedback and banging on the whammy bar for any of that stuff was cool. So, yeah. and I apologize. I went way off the deep end with Terry. So no. but that's, that's kind of, he was the guy for me, dude. I, I, I appreciate that because I, I, you know, you've, you've heard it firsthand how I will sit and pontificate on guys like 
uh, John Petrucci and Guthrie Govan and, oh, um, you know, Satriani and everything like, I, I mean, for God's sake, Steve Vai, I think was quoted as saying that Guthrie Govan is the best guitar player in the world. Like, <laughs> I would say he's probably the most technically proficient guitarist in the world. Most flexible um, as well. Most flexible. Yeah. He's, he's definitely like that, that kind of bastardization of like Frank Zappa and Steve Vai. I think that you, you know, I mean, obviously Steve Vai by um, extension with the time he played with Frank Zappa, you know, not to get off subject. Frank Zappa is another one. He's no longer with us, but people often forget how great his guitar playing was. Absolutely. Uh, he was very guitar centric. V- very much so. And he was very complex, like the way he yeah. wrote music, like, you know what I mean? It, it, he was something else, but for for me and and I, I I mentioned before, dime was it for me? Like that that's that like, it's weird. A lot of the stuff that I do playing wise, I'm much more into the alternate picking thing, you know. And that's I think right. part and parcel to Malmstein and um uh the the shredder guys like that, you know. Even later guys like Rusty Cooley. And, um, uh, y- you know, the, the real fast alternate picking thing, uh, on the neck pickup real, you know, smooth, that smooth thing. But dime for me was just the, the things that I took from him was like the first time I heard cemetery gates and I heard that squeal at the end, you know, the, the, at the end, whenever him and Phil basically trade off the pitch the gates and then you hear dime do the whammy thing i dude i went on like i went and watched videos of how dime does it i still to this day primarily use my tremolo my my floyds by bringing the bar back around behind you know facing the opposite direction which should be intuitive um and dump it and do those harmonics i throw those in all the time. You could almost develop a drinking game out of it. How much I do those. <laughs> like <clears throat> if you ever come see Hellbent, like you'll you'll see me do that just like in random places. But like those things and then the use of pinch harmonics that aren't like lower like the Zach Wild thing. Um yeah. the ones that are like during scales or whatever, like that kind of thing. Um wide stretches. Um, I, you know, just, and, and the big thing though was the way he played when you watch dime play, it was like, it was like an assault, like, he, like a, a, like it, it, when I think of a rock star, like on stage that, that the, the vibe, when you look at them and you go, wow, that guy means business. He looks so cool. I think of dime. And that giant mop of hair that he had holding his his ML, you know, just in a way that meant like he was playing. It was business time. You know what I mean? Like it's more in the presentation, looking at people and like, you know, screaming in a crowd like performance wise is more what I glean from dime, you know, and, and that impacted how I put on a performance which subsequently changes how you play you know what i mean yeah well and he wasn't um he wasn't just some you know redneck shit kicker from texas either he was eloquent 
his phrasing was so like I remember seeing the video for um, Cemetery Gates, and he's his left hand positioning is absolutely perfect. He's got the thumb right at the back of the fretboard. He's on top of the strings, all, all four fingers, and he's it was so articulate with his with his left hand, and his right hand was moving at a million miles a minute. So he's not he was incredibly sophisticated for for that style of music. And I think for a lot of metal players, he set the benchmark where it's, it's great to have heavy riffs, but you got to know your shit. Like you got to be able to play that thing. Well, and that's the thing people talk about dime, not knowing theory and everything like that. They were like, Oh, well, you know, dime did there was later in his life. And again, I'm quoting these things that I'm like, I remember reading. There was something in an interview or something. Dime's like, yeah, people say that I don't know theory and stuff. It's just, I don't talk about it. And it's, it, it almost had the jazz mentality. You know what I mean? When a jazz player plays, they don't think, oh, I'm going to play a, a Phrygian dominant scale. Oh, I'm going to play this arpeggio. They just do right. it because they know right. it so intimately. And I think that's the thing with Dime is that he knew what would work, what would sound right. And he also knew what he was doing musically to the point right. where he didn't have to sit and think about it. It was just second nature because he lived with that fucking thing. Like he lived with his guitar and it, it it was who he was like, I mean, and you hear that's pretty much, I think around the uniform thing with all the people we've talked about today, all the players is that they, they lived it, man. They lived their instruments. Right. You know, they all came from a time when you had to know, like you had to know your craft or you were dead. It was more like, obviously there's a lot of, good guitarists out there. There's a lot of great guitarists out there. There's a lot of incredible more than guitarists ever. out there. More than and I'm ever. sure I'm sure back then there were two, but it was a competition. Like uh-huh. it's this was the Wild West. Literally the Wild West. Like you had to be the fastest gun in the West if you were going to survive in any of those scenes. And that goes back to the Eddie thing. You know, him keeping his back to the audience so that nobody figured out how what he was doing. Right. Uh, it's a little bit cheeky, but you had to know your craft inside and out. It wasn't enough to just be good. You had to be the best if you were right. ever going to hang with the big boys. And At- Dime was definitely somebody who was able to hang with the big boys. Uh, agreed. And and that that's what and that's the thing is there's just some people that have an X factor that you know they're special. And right. when they come out of the woodwork, it's it's great. And like you said, there's tons of great. I think, you know, again, you think about like just over time, these people kind of come out of the woodwork and you go, holy shit. Like, you know, you can say Terry Kath. Then you can say Gary Moore. Then you can say Van Halen. Uh, you can say uh, it. And even though he's underrated, which I think is a shame, uh, Jason Becker, like, yeah. um, again, another guy, we didn't lose him, but we lost his playing because of ALS. But Jason right. Becker, dude, he was, in my opinion, he was set to take over the fucking universe. Like, and and then unfortunately he was stricken with ALS. But then Vi came out. Then you had guys like um, Satriani. And again, this is still the 80s, 90s thing. And yep. then more recently, you have guys come out of the woodwork like Tosin Abasi. You know, they're doing something new and different and exciting. But the mentality, like you said, it's not the Wild West anymore with the advent of the Internet and social media and YouTube. People can see what you're doing. And he went, all right, I'll lean into it. And he goes here. You know? Yeah, I think it's 
you know, again, going back to that time period, yeah, you had to really be, you had to be better than the next guy. Today, it's, I don't want to say it's a more nurturing environment, but it's a more, um, I think it's a more open environment where players don't have to be, not everybody has to learn just pentatonics, even though I, I kind of wish I <laughs> knew something other than pentatonics. Same. Occasionally, I'll, <laughs> occasionally I'll, throw, I'll throw a modal thing out there, like I'm working on Lydian stuff right now, but even then, it's not great, but I, I don't feel like I'm a failure because I don't, at least not anymore, I don't feel like a failure because I, I didn't ever practice that stuff. It's a much more forgiving time and it's 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 more forgiving if you're a hobbyist now if i was a you know professional i think it would be a different story but it's a more forgiving more nurturing time whereas back then it was kill or be killed like you had to like i keep saying you had to know that shit inside out you had to be the best kid on the block if you were ever going to survive right and there's you know dime was one of those guys like eddie um you know even like randy rhodes to a point they were they knew their instruments inside and out and the moment they hit the scene all of a sudden everybody said oh i gotta learn that now you know like not many guitarists were using like the digitech whammy pedal and really on the surface it's just not a it's not like a really high fidelity piece of equipment it's a it's a novelty yeah but dime made it work yeah and he made it musical agreed you know there it's you know and you look at like Eddie, he's using these horrifically large like tape machines um, and using this massive plate reverb in the studio that was reserved for like country music. And he made it work for him. He created an ethereal sound. Yeah. Randy, even though his tone wasn't, it wasn't great. And we only had two albums of Ozzy to, to, to listen to with Randy, his playing made up for that. And I think with dime too, even though he didn't have a conventionally great sound, it was all him. He owned it a hundred percent. Agreed. And he took that with him. And nobody will ever touch that. Not that anybody would. He's dime like all these other players. He's it's pretty much like sacrosect. Like you, this is these are the players that you have to you have to follow. You have to listen to them. You have to worship them. And yeah. you know we all can learn a lot from those guys. True. Um. Well, we're I dude, we 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 could keep on keeping on on this, but I'll tell you what, oh, yeah. we we could um, we'll call it we'll call it here for an episode. There is one last thing that I want to start doing. At the end yep. of the episode, I want to give like a recommendation, like one piece okay. of gear, and you know we don't have to go super deep into it, but it's like a pedal, uh, a pedal pickups, an amp, a guitar. Uh, you know, hell, even a set of strings. Just a recommendation for anyone who listens to this, something that they might want to try. Uh, okay. I will defer to you first. What's like one piece of gear that you think someone should go out and try? Wow. Um, so I'm going to be, well, all right. Let, let me think about this for a second. All right. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be a fanboy for a second, but to me, it's one of the things that inspires me in, in my day-to-day playing is just trying to find different ways to shape my tone. And I, unfortunately I'm kind of reliant on the gear that I use to get that tone, but I'm able to make it work somehow. But for me, the, the, the gear that kind of helps me with that, or at least makes it a little bit easier for me, at least on like an esoteric level, honestly is like DeMarzio products. And I know it sounds stupid, but so much of my gear in the past was built around, you know, 
well, I have one guitar that has a super distortion in it. I have another guitar that has a tone zone in it. I have another one that has a Norton in it. Well, now I have to try to, I, I have to make this work that I have this in my gear. Um, but it's just so fun. Like, I know it's not a, a, a cheap hobby to get into, but um, swapping pickups, honestly, if you're, if you feel like you're in a rut with your tone, you want to shake it up a little bit, throw in a, throw a different pickup in there. Well, Single what, coil, P90, whatever. What's a pickup you would recommend? For me? For someone to try. Go, for someone to try. I would, I'm going to go out of the box with the Marzio, and I'm going to go with the Norton, the standard Norton. It's a pickup that no, I don't even know if they make it anymore, but not many people play it. I think Reb Beach was a big user of it, um, and I know Ola England used it uses it in some of his older guitars like when he was using siggy brown guitars he had a norton in one of his it's just a it i know people use the term transparent but it is a transparent clear big sounding pickup and it just works to me it works in whatever whatever you're using it's not too honky it's not too high output it just gives you enough it's more than a paf but as guthrie would say less than a death bucker um right yeah. It's it's not a obscene, but it's definitely a little bit hotter than what you're used to. Right. And I think if you're going to go with something, you know, instead of doing the the typical super distortion or tone zone or even like the air zone, the Norton I think is a great place to start because it, it literally gives you everything that you need, and nothing that you don't. And I really sound like I'm, you know, a Demarzio spokesperson. I'm trying not to do that. I just for me that's that's gear that I've kind of grown accustomed to. I got so. you. Well, it's a good recommendation because a lot of people think of the super distortion or the Evo or something like that. So right. that's good. I would throw out uh, a pedal that is not being made anymore by a company that is absolutely awesome. Walrus Audio made okay. an overdrive called the Mayflower. Okay. That, I'm not familiar with that at all. Oh, that dude, they don't make it anymore and it breaks my heart. My buddy Larry had one and he the switch busted on it. So he brought it to me to fix and I emailed Walrus and I said, Hey, I got a buddy who a uh, client. It was one of the first times they used the term client. Um, I said, I have a client who brought me this. And um, I was wondering if you could send me the switch that you use. I'd rather use that instead of trying to figure out something that might not work. And I'll tell you what, for being a little schlub in the middle of nowhere, who was just getting on his feet as a tech Walrus audio treat. First of all, treated me like a rock star and they sent me the okay. switch along with a bunch of swag. Like they sent me stickers oh, and stuff like that. Yeah, they were great. And they were like, that's so cool that you're fixing this and that you contacted us. They were like really great about it. And, um, but to test it, obviously I had to test it to make sure it worked. And I'm going to tell you something, man, it was one of the best overdrive pedals I've ever used ever. It was so like tactile and transparent. It was just so good. Like I said, they don't make it anymore. So for anyone who's listening out there, go on the used market, wherever your preferred place to go is eBay, Reverb, Facebook Marketplace, for God's sake, if you can find one on there, uh, you, your local shop, whatever. See if you can find a used Mayflower. Um, it It is so good. And let me make sure I'm, I'm saying the right name. I'm very certain it was called the Mayflower. Uh, I don't want to put the wrong name out there. It was years ago I tried this. So let me type in Walrus Audio Mayflower. Well, yeah, the Mayflower. Dude, the, like I said, go find one and just try it. Because if you're thinking, well, it can't be 
better than my insert overdrive here. Seriously right. try it because it is a really good gain pedal. It's it's kind of mid mid drive sort of thing, but it does the clean boost thing. It's it it's like it does the clean boost thing. It does like it has a bass and treble control. Like it's level drive bass treble. That's it. And it was just so good. So that's my recommendation to people out there for if you're looking for a new overdrive pedal, go find a Walrus Audio Mayflower. Like they are just so good. On a side note, do they were they the company that made the what is it, the Julia chorus pedal? Oh, the Janus. The Janus. Okay. Yes. I know something like that. That is yeah. also a super cool pedal. Yeah, I heard that. I don't know why I thought it was the Julia. I think another company makes the Julia. Oh no, 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 yeah, no. Pedal. It was it was Julia. The Janus was a fuzz face, like a fuzz okay. pedal. You are right. Okay. It's the Julia. It's a great chorus as well. The and also yep. they make the uh, was it called the Deep Six, um, compressor. That's a great compressor. Yep. Like Walrus Audio is great. They are a they were like the second round of boutique companies that kind of came out. Like there was Wampler, um, uh, Keeley. JHS and then that kind of begat like Mr. Black um uh New Neighbor uh Walrus Audio Earthquaker devices like that that kind of second round of boutique pedals like the you know just their pe- and plus their artwork on their pedals Walrus Audio they're fantastic like they are just a great company with great products and that's not me meaning to be a shill because I personally don't use pedals anymore because right. I, I run the Helix. The only thing I ever co- I collect anymore is wah pedals. That's it. Um, and we can get into our, our gas or guitar acquisition syndrome uh, things oh, yes. maybe on the next podcast. But right. this was this was a good one, man. This was a good one. Yeah. And I'm going to have to go back and listen to more Terry Kath. And I'm gonna have to listen to more Dimebag, like not not to blow smoke, but Dimebag was always one of those players that it, he I, he eluded me because, like I said, I didn't experience him the way that you did. But I always respected his playing, and I always thought he seemed like such a generally cool dude. And he put like one of my favorite un, like underrated guitar brands, which is Dean. He kind of put them on, on the, map. the map for younger players. Oh now, yeah, you could argue that guys like. Um, that guys like Howard Lease and um, players like that were more into Dean than or put Dean on the map before Dime did, but he introduced that stuff to kids. Oh yeah, you know, and they make and they make some incredible instruments. Absolutely, I don't care, they... I don't care who's trying to sue them; their instruments are incredible. <laughs> no, their their older Sorry, stuff and their U their USA stuff is incredible. The import stuff. It depends. I'm not going to lie. And you could say that yeah. about a lot of companies, but Dean's USA stuff is absolutely crazy good. Like crazy yeah. good stuff. But well, let's call let's call this an yeah. episode. Matt, this okay. has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh yeah. thanks thanks for being part of this. I would just be the tone oh, thank bro. Thank you for having me. I would just be the tone <laughs> bro and I don't like that. That's weird. It makes me right. sound like a baseball cap wearing fool. Um, this definitely works better when when there's two of us. That kind of that sounded a little weird. Oh, well, love you, buddy. uh, (laughs) Well, there's other implications there, but, you know, it is, you know, no, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that on another podcast. 
Yeah, we'll do out episode. <laughs> the Tone Bros after midnight. The uh, oh yes, yeah. <laughs> no, well, but thank you guys for stopping in. If you have any anything like uh, that you want to recommend or anything, uh, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll figure out something with social media presence and an email and stuff that you can contact us. But for right now, we're just kind of doing our thing. Make sure we'll have more episodes coming up here soon. So make sure you. Uh, Take a look and see what uh, see what we come up with and what we talk about. Thank you for listening. And remember, gain is not volume. Right. Peace out.